are listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. On today's episode, we're, discuss- ta- we're talking about the 10th book in the series, The Cat Who Talked to Ghosts. Cat Who Talked to Ghosts. Now, this was published when? 1990. And I'm assuming the uh, same narrator for the audiobooks. Same narrator, um, but like the previous book, this mm-hmm. one is actually available um, digitally now. Fantastic. Now, there's something interesting about this book that I uh, have that I see right here that uh, is a first for the series, if I if I understand correctly. Yes, um, this is the first we hear of Quill's journal. Uh, it's uh, and it is a point where Lillian Jackson Braun trades the narrative. Uh, from the third person to the first person. We are getting Quill's thoughts and feelings right through his eyes for this particular moment. Uh, it's it's a long enough block that if you're reading it, you wonder if the entire book is written in that. Fortunately, that is not the case. <laughs> that, that may be a personal preference. I tend to find that first person narratives can get a little exhausting. Mm-hmm. They also, for mystery series, for mysteries particularly, I don't find them particularly helpful. When you're trying to get more information, um, just having one perspective doesn't do you any good. Well, there also runs into the chance of, say, the unreliable narrator. Exactly. And, and we know how Quill can be. So I understand the uh, the hesitancy to see this be a, a, a continuing thing. Yes. But there are certain moments that are, frankly, best told in Quill's own words. And this, the opening to this book, unfortunately, is one of them. Now, are there other books that just, well, first of all, we should probably say also... uh, Yes, spoiler alerts. Spoiler mm -hmm. alerts ahead. We're going to talk about the whole book. Take a break. Go read the book. Come back. (laughs) And this book is officially 30 years old because, uh, like any elder millennium who is on the uh, other side of... What I say? Millennium? Yes. Millennium. Like any elder millennium... uh, Millennial. Friday nights on Fox. uh, No, millennial... uh, I still think the 90s were last decade. When no, that was many decades ago. So that was a hard thing I was wrapping around my head as we were getting ready for this episode. Uh, But aside from spoilers, do we see that first-person narration come back? It does, um, and usually with a purpose. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that when these moments come. Uh, there There are simply moments that are better told from strictly Quill's perspective. And not from a narrational perspective, from a third-person narrational perspective. And you know, like I said, this happens to be one of them. She tends to res- she tends to reserve them for moments of um, of great importance, shall we put it that way? Great. Well, let's go ahead and let's jump right into this right. one. I say. So this book opens. Quill is at home listening to Verdi's Otello on a Sunday night. When, by the way, I'm an opera singer, so Otello is actually one of the first operas that I saw in a big house. Oh, really? So it's a great sentimental value to me. Uh, I love it. It's beautiful. If you haven't listened to it or gotten a chance to see it once, you know, listen to it beforehand. But if you get a chance to see it live, I highly recommend you do it. It's really incredible. Uh, and as the theatrical type myself, I am automatically associate Otello with Ken Ludwig's great farce, Lend Me a Tenor, where they're performing Otello. Yep. And they have to well, dress up. Well, they are up. performing Otello. Yes, well, they're performing Otello, and the world-famous tenor, Tita Morelli, someone has to jump in, case of mistaken identity. It's very silly. So two different re- so two different reasons to have yes. sentimentality towards Either Otello. Way, music's anyway, we're, we're, so, we're one sentence into this summary. So, <laughs> so sorry, let's continue. All right. So Quill is at home listening to Otello on a Sunday night when he gets a panicked call from Iris Cobb. She, by the way, is uh, still managing the Goodwinter farmhouse, and she lives on site. Hmm. She is hearing noises and seeing things at her windows, and she is just 
freaking out. Goodness. Um, as you would in the middle of nowhere when you're suddenly hearing terrible noises. Right. Quill tells her to call Susan Expert, who's, who's her friend and business partner, um, and he will be there absolutely momentarily, as soon as he can, to take her to Susan's condo for the night because Mrs. Cobb likes ghosts. She's not... She, you know, we, we in the cat who turned on and off. She's very used to ghosts, right? Um, you know, they're 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 not something that that freaks her out. So the fact that she is terrified is a big sign to Quill that something is really wrong. Uh, very much so. So he throws on a coat um, and shoes over his pajamas, and he takes off. Uh, gets there as fast as he can, but he is too late. Oh no! Iris has suffered a heart attack and dies before he oh, arrives. Oh, Iris! Yeah. Aww. This is why I didn't want to do this one. I've been dreading this book because I, I know I am because I knew from the very beginning that Iris dies, and I was not looking forward to the book in which she dies. Aww. Anyway, so Quill gets to spend the next few hours calling the police, the museum's board, Iris's son, arranging Iris's funeral. Of course, by the way, he calls the paper first. The something. The something. <laughs> this can be something. He calls them first. He is, of course, being Quill, instantly suspicious of the circumstances because Iris was terrified on the phone. But when he arrives at the museum, every single light is off. All the internal doors are shut hmm. and there is no sign that she passed out and everything went black. So something is very, very wrong. Because really, who turns off the lights when they're afraid of ghosts? Right. Going back to a little bit of growing up, there was a crawl... The, the basement in my parents' house was literally in... There was an area... You've been to the house where there is the laundry room and the crawl space. I was terrified going in there at night. And so it would be turning on every single light. And as you leave all the lights, you're running up the stairs as fast as you can because otherwise the monster is going to grab your ankles. <laughs> exactly. So I, I feel you, Iris. I am so sorry. That's... Oh. Uh, I can understand why yeah. you'd be dreading this book. So the first person to arrive on, on at the museum is Larry Lanspeak. Uh, he's the head of the museum board as well as owning the local department store, and he comes over to help Quill with various arrangements. Hmm. And he also mentions that somebody really needs to stay on the premises of the museum. Quill volunteers, and then he meets Vince and Verona Boswell and their baby, Baby. Um, so the baby's name is Baby. The baby's name is Baby. Bebe. Bebe. It is not the Bebe. It is <laughs> her name is Baby. They are staying in the guest in the guest cottage on uh, the property so that Vernon can catalog Senior Goodwinter's collection of the historic printing presses. Vernon's voice is very loud, very piercing, and that seems to be his defining personality. Because when Larry tells uh, Quill that Vernon is from Pittsburgh, Quill quips that he must have been a coach for the Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Um, his other big thing is that he has a slightly twisted leg that he claims is from childhood polio. Hmm. Um, I have a feeling this is going to play an important part later on. I wouldn't have mentioned it otherwise. Uh, uh, interesting. So a bum leg. A bum leg. Hmm. Uh, Verona, his wife, has a southern <laughs> accent. Has a southern accent and ends every sentence with a question, which is annoying to read. But... <sighs> Frankly, it is accurate to my uh, experience to a certain kind of Southern woman. Um, they both attempt to be very friendly, but they grate on Quill's nerves, and he sends them away so that he can write so that he can write Iris's obituary. Mm. Note on the obituary: it is you know florid and beautiful and everything that Iris would have hoped. But despite claiming mentally that uh, the less said about her third and final husband, the better, uh, and noting that she never went by Hackpole, she is noticed as uh, she is noted as Iris Cobb Hackpole. Hackpole for her obituary. Rude. Who who made that call? I wonder. I don't know. That's and that's a name, Iris Cobb Hackpole. The the her whole name. You know, we don't we never learn her maiden name. We only know her married. Um, but if she has the same, but if she took the name of her 
first husband, then she would be Iris Huff Cobb Hackpole. Wow. Yeah, well, with our names, we really can't. I, with Ramsdorf Terry, I know. That's... <laughs> So, as we mentioned, Quill writes Iris's obituary, and he calls it into the something. Uh, literally, he dictates it over the phone seven <laughs> times there. Um, and he then he also goes back into he goes back into pickaxe to check on some things, pick up a few more things from the house um, because he kind of ran out in the middle of the night. He nearly runs over Baby in the driveway of the museum. What? He noticed he nearly. He she's fine. He notices that she's playing with a walkie-talkie that Verona takes away because it's daddy's. Quill, by the way, is apparently not a fan of kids and suggests that they put Baby on a leash. How old is Baby? This is an interesting question. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Um, I'm very curious to know. Once again, he refuses their aggressive neighborliness uh, and goes to check on the cats who've settled into life at the museum nicely. Uh, Coco, however, is becoming obsessed with staring out a window where Iris presumably saw her ghost. Hmm. This is where we assume that the cat is talking to ghosts. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, indeed. We get ready for Iris's funeral, and despite a drained battery the morning of the funeral, uh, Quill gets a jump from the Boswells, heads to pickaxe for the funeral. Hmm. Uh, after the interment, Dennis, who is uh, Iris's son, Dennis Huff, and uh, Dennis comes in. Uh, Dennis has come in the day before, and he and Quill drive to the Goodwinter farmhouse. And we get a bit of a crash course in Goodwinter mythology. While they are driving there, um, it should be mentioned the reason they're driving there is because uh, Dennis is actually a contractor. Hmm. And uh, Quill wants to know if there is any chance that, you know, there is something, there's something that might have been loose in the walls. Sure. Or um, an animal that might have, you know, crawled in somewhere and might have been the thing that scared her. Now, is Dennis so, a local? Dennis is not local. Dennis is from St. Louis, which we remember from the cab who turned on and off. Ah, yes. So Quill, in, in all of his phone calls that he did after Iris died, he immediately, of course, called Dennis. Um, Dennis was already planning to fly up um, the day, uh, the, the, the next day, because he was coming up for the opening of uh, Iris's new antique shop, mm. which she was opening with Susan Esbridge. So that's why Dennis was there, but now he came for his mother's funeral. Being that Dennis is a contractor, Quill thinks it can't hurt for him to take a look over the house and see if there's anything that he might be able to tell Sure, um, that's there. But in their drive back there, we get this crash course in Goodwinter mythology has never been clearly explained really until now. So there are four brothers who are responsible for the current 49 listed good winters in the phone book, which remember is only 14 pages long, and four distinct traits. We have the respectable good winters, uh, led by currently by Dr. Hal Goodwinter. Uh, we have the eccentric good winters, currently led by Amanda. We have the black sheep with no names given because I think they were encouraged to move to Mexico, which is per Melinda Goodwinter in the post office, in, in Cat Who uh, Played Post Office. Mm-hmm. And the unfortunate Goodwinters, oh. who were descended from the eldest brother, Ephraim, who was who managed to kill 42 miners in a cave-in in 1904 because he was too stingy to provide safety measures, and no one has forgotten it. This, uh, yes, by the yes, way, yes, yes, is yes. Junior Goodwinters, Senior Goodwinter, Gritty Goodwinters branch of the family. Gritty Goodwinter. Yes. Sorry. Remember, she's passed away tragically, so let's not laugh too much. I'm, I'm trying hard not to, but I'm just imagining. <laughs> now I just passed away. I'm just there, There's Gritty in a casket with his uh, Flyers jersey on. Anyway, continue. Anyway, <laughs> All right. So back to Ephraim Goodwinter. It's, it is according to historical records that he hung himself. Uh, but oh, wow. there is a mysterious society called the Noble Sons of the Noose who claim that their ancestors lynched him. 
Noble Sons of the Noose. Noble Sons of the Noose. Oh my god. This is like a Dungeons and Dragons it faction. It totally is. De- Dennis and Quill get to the farmhouse. Boswell is waiting to greet them and asking if they found Iris's personal cookbook because his wife would love to have it. Hmm. Wow, dude. Because apparently he also asked Larry Lansby at the funeral if he could have Iris's job. Whoa. This cookbook, by the way, is handwritten, contains all of Iris's personal recipes, and it was the only thing she saved in the fire at the Klingenshun muse- uh, mansion because it was in her luggage. This is, again, back to post office. Right, right. And she was planning to take this on her honeymoon. That's the only reason it survived. Huh. It's not going to a random neighbor man just because his wife likes to cook. So as I explained, Dennis is a contractor, and he and Quill go over the farmhouse to see if anything might explain the noises. Uh, but Dennis declares that the house is built like Fort Knox with nothing that would explain what frightened Iris, Iris to death. Huh. At this point, Quill is really beginning to suspect that Iris's death was not completely natural. That, hmm, does, yeah. it sounds very suspicious. Something is very weird about this. He's also, by the way, learning not to share his suspicions with Polly, um, who is completely horrified and shares his theory uh, with, of this with her. Uh, in the meantime, Quill attends the video reading of Iris's will. Um, after some expected bequests to Susan Exbridge, her business partner, she bequeaths her her half of the business, uh, and the historical society, which is a great which is a great relief because then it means nobody has to dispose of Iris's really fantastic collection of antiques. But they're antiques, so that's always hard to dispose of. Um, well, dispose of properly and everything else. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's revealed that Quillerin has inherited the Pennsylvania German shrunk that he gave Iris as a wedding gift. Oh my. And Iris's cookbook. Now this is hilarious because remember Quill doesn't cook. No, he doesn't, but yeah. you don't turn down Iris Cobb's cooking. Absolutely Just not. like you will not turn down her cookbook. Exactly. Quill wisely proposes publishing the cookbook and donating the proceeds to a memorial scholarship in Iris's name for home economics. God, we were doing so Aww. good until that last phrase. Home, econ- home economics. It could just be something else, but no, home ec. Yeah. God. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but but it is nice to know that, you know, the general plan is that we're going to take this cookbook, we're going to make it available to the community, and people who buy it are going to be contributing towards the scholarship that will help people who, you know, maybe go into economic management. Um, or, you know, there are a million other ways to refer to things other than home ec. Not just being training to be a quote-unquote homemaker. You're yeah. actually going to do something that's you know, maybe, going to be... Maybe it could go to a scholarship for, uh, for people to go to a culinary institute. Right. Lord knows Moose County needs those. Right. Well, yeah, the restaurant state is just deplorable. Exactly. So Dennis, after this, decides to stay through the opening of what would have been Iris and Susan Expert's antique shop, which is Expert and Cobb Fine Antiques. Great name. And Quill starts to wonder if that's in his mother's memory or because of his new rapport with Susan Exbridge. Dennis, by the way, has a wife and Iris's first grandchild that she never got to meet uh, back at home. They were supposed to come up in a few weeks. Oh, God. But, you know, this wouldn't be the first time a man left his family for someone. Is this grandchild's name grandchild? Uh, Dennis Jr. Dennis Jr. Okay, so we're not having a baby grandchild situation. No, 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 no. Uh, Dennis's child gets a name. Baby is just baby. So back at the farmhouse, uh, Homer Tibbet is there and to mm. greet Quill. And uh, Homer Tibbet tells Quill that the house is actually haunted. Senior Goodwinter told Homer that he'd seen the ghost of Ephraim Goodwinter walk through his bedroom wall carrying a noose. Oh, wow. And three days later, Senior died. Oh. He also tells Quill about a mysterious encounter that Homer personally had with the ghost of the dead miners on the anniversary of the explosion um, and promises to take him out next year to see if it still happens. Oh, jeez. Um, the description of this event is Homer is walking home. Um, this is around 1935, he says. Mm-hmm. 
he's walking home and suddenly he starts to see ghostly lights walking over a ridge of what have been what would have been the Goodwinter Mine slurry pile. Oh. It's completely in silence. You just see the shaking lights oh. as they move up the hill. Um, now, as I oh, excuse me, 1925. Um, this is before the roads were paved. He comments that, you know, he doesn't think it happens much anymore now that people are whizzing by. But it's confirmed by Mitch Ogilvy, who is a character we'll meet in a minute, uh, that it still happens. He saw it three years ago. Hmm. So this, so this mysterious procession of lights on the anniversary of the mining disaster still happens. Back at the back at the far at the farmhouse, uh, we meet Quillerin's other Quill's other neighbor at the farmhouse, which is the Fugtree Farm, occupied by Christy Waffle, nay Fugtree. Um, she kept Waffle after her divorce because, as she and Quill acknowledge, anything is better than Fugtree. She's not wrong. Not not wrong. No. Yes. There is a little bit of confusion. She had called to uh, let Quill know a night or so ago that he'd left his car lights on and mentioned that she was sitting up with her sick kids. Um, but when Quill asks about the rest of her family, she tells him she lives alone. The confusion is cleared up when she explains that the kids she has are baby goats. Which she, are technically kids. Which are kids. They are, they are absolutely <laughs> kids. Um, she inherited the farm when her mom died a few years ago. The building is absolutely beautiful, but it's a mess. Mm. Um, her mom is what we would today call a hoarder. Um, <laughs> so much stuff. Uh, but Quill suggests that she applies to the K-Fund for help getting the house registered as a historic landmark. Oh. He's kind of envisioning a like, museum village where you've got the Fugtree Farm, and then you've got the Goodwinter Farm, and then you've got the Printing Press Museum, and all, everything kind of, tend to kind of together to be a destination. So everything eventually within Moose County is going to be a museum. <laughs> um, but he also suggests, you know, interviewing her about raising goats for the Quill Pen. Sure. Uh, it's also apparently an excuse to miss the antique store opening. But in addition to the ghosts, Quill gets a ghost story. We get a lot of these. Uh, so the black sheep branch of the Goodwinter stems from Samson Goodwinter, who fell in love. Samson, by the way, is the brother who uh, was scared off his horse when a flock of blackbirds were Ah, yes, yes, yes. Um, also the, uh, the womanizer of the group. But he apparently <laughs> fell in love with Emmeline Fugtree, and when their parents didn't approve, they would sneak out to meet. Emmeline was pregnant when the blackbirds startled his horse and completely shunned after the baby was born. Uh, her son was eventually taken by her parents and, and raised as their son, and she eventually threw herself off the roof of her house. Her ghost, apparently, likes to stroll up and down a spiral staircase that no longer exists, uh, and Chrissy sees her whenever there is a thunderstorm. So Quill's protective instincts after this are very much triggered, especially when Christy gets a phone call from her ex and looks absolutely terrified. But she claims everything's fine, sends it back to the farmhouse with goat cheese and a donation. A mysterious family Bible that her mother bought at auction. Hmm. We get a little bit more of the Goodwinter story, uh, Goodwinter hanging story specifically, when Quill goes to dinner with Mildred. She's in charge of an exhibit at the Farmhouse Museum slated to open in the next few weeks. Uh, the Goodwinter Mine Disaster, Truth or Myth? The exhibit seems really well thought out, but there's, a, there's apparently been a bit of a kerfluffle between Mildred and Fran Brody over using hmm. a photo of what appears to be a body hanging from a tree. Oh. Um, after arbitration from Larry Lanthwaite, the photo is used, but in its original size, not the giant poster that Fran wanted. Ooh. In regard to Fran Mildred Quips, she was always a brat in school, and she's still a brat. <laughs> Which is a good reminder of how much younger than, than Quill's generation Fran really is. Right. I mean, we're talking early 20s here, um, and let's remember that in the previous book, she was very heavily chasing Quillerin until, <laughs> you know, his Macintosh... Uh, it, his, his Macintosh coat of arms rolled over her foot. Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, so eventually they, they found something that that works. Um, and when Quill returns from dinner, he takes a walk uh, to this kind of covered area over the creek that is called the Willow Way. 
which is where Samson and Emmeline had their romantic trysts. But when he gets there, he finds Christy arguing with her ex, who is apparently wanted for some kind of crime in Lockmaster. Oh. He's dressed in a green prison jumpsuit. And she sends him away, and Quill heads back to the museum after, you know, throwing a couple of rocks in the uh, in the stream to try and startle him away. Excuse me, let me just get the absolute hell out of here. Yeah, out I of this way. Coco, uh, now that they've moved to the museum, still acting weird. Uh, he's staring out the window, hiding under rugs, knocking bird-themed books off the shelves. Huh. Uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and to kill a mockingbird particularly. Um, <laughs> a call to Lori Bomba recommends more poultry in this diet, which is not her best insight. Usually she's much better than that. Now, more poultry, is that something that, it, that the cats just reject outright? Absolutely or? not. Uh, it should be mentioned that, you know, they've moved into the farmhouse, which is Iris's domain. Iris not only has... A refrigerator, a freezer, she has two extra freezers where she keeps various baked goods and cooking and, and, and cooking that she just pulls out of the whim. You know, they've been eating through her meatloaf, her lamb shanks, uh, macaroni and cheese, uh, cookies. Mm -hmm. Anything you can think of that Iris possibly baked is in these freezers. So they've just been eating through, they've been eating like kings. The entire back stock, yeah. Uh, so not so again, not her best insight that they just need more poultry. It's really not that hard for them to pull poultry out of Iris's cooking. Um, so the museum does open with this disasters exhibit, and it goes over really, really well. Uh, and Quill is chatting with Larry Lanspeak about who they're looking at to take Iris's job. It's apparently between Vince Boswell, the guy out in the hired man's cabin, uh, and the desk clerk in the new Pickaxe Hotel, by the way, last renovated in 1935, uh, Mitch Ogilvy. <laughs> Um, Larry gossips that Vince and Verona aren't married, um, and if he gets the job, he'll actually send the two of them back down below, which is such a great character reference. Why would you hire somebody like that? Right. Um, Quill suggests that Mitch is probably the better choice. Um, he's not clearly morally bankrupt and doesn't possess a voice that could drill rock, but Larry says that he and Susan <laughs> Exbridge, of all people, are backing Vince. After this conversation, Quill and Larry are called to the museum office because something's missing. There was a sheet with two burned eye holes that supposedly belonged to one of the lynch mob. Um, and also missing is Iris's cookbook. Oh. Quill, Quill oh. wisely decided that um, the smartest idea to get things started is to have Mildred start testing these recipes. Um, but the notebook has disappeared. That's and not to top good. everything off, they can't find the cats. So Coco and Yum Yum are missing too? Very briefly. Uh, everything else. Well, is, I would, everything else is missing a lot more more thoroughly. Apparently okay, I was going to say we we the cat. This is an entire. There, there's a lot more books to go through of a lot more cats. So we. Yes. Of course, they're going to be found. Yeah, the cats are I'm found. I'm less concerned about uh, that. They were apparently hiding in the bathroom, asleep on Iris' pink towels. Aww. Aww. Um, but Aww. of course, the bad news is that the sheet and the Iris' cookbook are still missing. That's very bad news, yes. And further bad news comes from Christy at the Fug Tree Farm. Uh, she calls Quill to tell him that he can't run the article he wrote about her goats. Oh. Because someone has poisoned them, has poisoned the goats. Oh, no. It is absolutely it kills the whole herd. It's terrible. And oh, her ex-husband is the prime suspect. Oh, jeez. Yeah, not a good not a good guy. No. Um, nobody uh, has, clearly. Nobody has anything good to say about you this You don't guy. poison kids. Uh, well, and the does and the buck. The bucks are apparently the only. You don't poison thing. animals. You just don't poison animals. You don't poison anything or anybody. But an uh, oh god. Yeah. Aww. So she's absolutely distraught. Understandable. Um, yeah. Later, Homer Tippett comes to look over some things from the museum and takes Quill's out Quill out to the barn to show him the old building. Um, and they are interrupted by Vince, who gives Quill a crash course in antique printing presses while Homer makes his escape. <laughs> um, 
As Quill returns to the museum, Quill, Quill returns to the museum, Coco tries to make a break for it. Oh. Um, which leads Quill to becoming more and more suspicious of Vince, who, according to Polly, uh, appeared a few months ago, claims to be writing a book on the history of printing in America, and offered to catalog the printing presses in exchange for living rent-free in the cottage. Hmm. Quill comments that based on his experience as an interviewer, he's pretty good at separating those who know their stuff about a life to, after a lifetime of pursuing a subject and a passion, and those who memorize stuff out of the book. Hmm. Quill is pretty sure that Vince just memorized shit out of the book. It sounds like that, yeah. yeah hmm. There's there's no insights, there's no commentary, it's just, this is a printing press from this era. <laughs> it has this, this, and this. Yeah, that's, that's memorizing out of a book. After all of that, it's a restless night at the farmhouse. Coco leads Quill on a late night jaunt where he chatters at nothing, which is creepy as hell, and leads Quill to Christie's donated Bible. Quill has a disturbing dream about the headboard of the bed crushing him, and he ends up sleeping on the couch till morning. Oh, jeez. Which is when Arch calls him to tell him that a body has been found in the Willow Way. Oh, no. And it's Christie's ex-husband. Oh. Nobody's missing this guy. Mm, no. Uh, <laughs> apparently, according to the police, he was knocked over the head and dumped close to Christie's house, probably to throw suspicion on her for his murder. That means that Quill is probably going to be interviewed by the police, and so while he waits his turn, he investigates the Bible. The Bible is, Flyleaf is marked with all of the usual records um, of births, deaths, marriages, things that you would find on an antique Bible from the early 19th, uh, from, from the early uh, 20th century. And the family Bible as well, exactly. too, where it's keeping, yeah, exactly, like you said, keeping track of all the important family details. But the original owner also included articles from the Picayune that mention any family members. Uh -huh. The family name is Bosworth, and one entry in particular catches Quill's eye. Huh. A child named Vincent Bosworth fell from a tree and broke his leg while stealing fruit from the Trevelyan Orchard. Huh. Quill is beginning to suspect that Vince Boswell is actually Vince Bosworth, and he has a completely different motive for living on the Good Winter Farm. If that's true, according to the family tree that's listed in this Bible, it appears that Vincent is actually second cousins with Susan Exbridge and Larry Lansby. Blood's thicker than water and all of that. But oh, yes. This is the only reason that we can logically come up with why why they would remotely be supporting this very boorish guy that nobody should has not seen be before. in this position. Right. Exactly. Oh. Um, it, it, reading this genealogy is, is actually fascinating to me because I don't have a big family. Both my parents are only children. Um, so the whole second cousin connection and why that might be important, totally sure. important to me. Right, right, right. Interesting. It's always interesting to me, too, as well, having being from a slightly smallerish family. My mother was an only child, but my dad did have two sisters and a brother. And, you know, I have cousins that I have not spoken with in quite some time, and there's a couple that I've not met. So, yeah, it's... The interconnectivity of that is interesting, especially when it comes from a, when you're in a small community like that, where they may and, not they may not leave the the within the you know Moose County limits. Exactly, they may still be there on their own farm that's maybe ten miles away, or their own ranch that's just the next over ridge over. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's hmm, how it all connects. It is indeed. Now, in further suspicion, before they found the body, apparently Vince took off to Lockmaster to do some research at their library. Leaving Verona and Baby with no money and no food. What? Great guy. Yeah, Quill's stand up guy. instincts are triggered, and he quickly ransacks the museum kitchen for Iris's leftovers so they can have something to eat. And then the next day, when he's in town, does grocery shopping for that. As, sure. You know, as being a half decent human being. Right. Exactly. Um, Quill, for all his faults, is still a good guy. He's still a good guy. 
Um, and then on his way back, he crashes the museum board meeting to meet with Larry Landspeak about the Bosworth Bible. Hmm. Uh, it's not quite blackmail, but it does make clear that Quill knows the Landspeak family secrets and he's not afraid, afraid to apply them where needed. <laughs> so after the meeting, though, Verona comes to Quill's door in a panic. Baby is missing. Oh, no. Uh, Verona and Quill frantically search the barn because she likes to go play with the barn cats, and they find her unconscious in the stable and th under the threshing floor of the barn. Oh, no. Verona completely faints, and Quill waits for the ambulance with guidance from Dr. Halton not move anything. Um, once baby is taken to the hospital along with Verona, Quill, uh, Quill goes back to the farm, opens the door, and Coco shoots out, oh. taking off to the barn with Quill in pursuit. Hidden in the stable under a new litter of barn cats is a green prison jumpsuit from Lockmaster. Oh. After that, Quill makes three calls to the paper, to the sheriff, and finally to Larry Lansby. Now hold on, we have kittens. We have kittens. We have kittens, so uh, one of the cats has been up to something. Not Coco. This is, uh, this, this is, the, 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 uh, Coco and Yum Yum haven't been here long enough okay. uh, to just eat kittens. Um, okay. But there is a whole, you know, there are, there is a whole extra genealogy of barn cats that have been living in this barn <laughs> for many years, which is why Baby likes to go, like, like to go out there and, you know, play with the kitties. No, of course. Understandable. Um, after he makes these, these phone calls, uh, Quill kills time by interviewing Adam Dingleberry. <laughs> yes. Dingleberry is an important name in Pickaxe because they own the funeral home. Harry Dangleberry and Bush. <laughs> there's a play we did. There's a play I did where a character's name uh, Harry Dangle of Dangleberry and Bush, and this is all I'm hearing now with <coughs> Dingleberry. So Will goes to interview Adam Dingleberry, who is the 94 year old <laughs> head of the Dingleberry family funeral home. Um, there are some general stories about how the funeral business has changed over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. uh, he talks, Adam talks very interestingly about his, the fact that his family not only did coffins, but they also did furniture. So a lot of older Moose County homes will have pieces of Dingleberry furniture. Um, yeah. uh, this is an antique Dingleberry right exactly. here. Cedarwood Dingleberry. Anyway, after they tell the, the more common stories, Adam asks Quill to turn off his tape recorder. Uh, and then drops a historical bombshell. Oh. Apparently, Ephraim Goodwinter, who supposedly hanged himself but might have been Lynch, who had over 87 vehicles and 100 mourners on foot in his funeral processions, wasn't dead. For his funeral, he wasn't nope. dead? According to Adam, he ran away to Switzerland, changed his name, and the hired man, Larry Luther Bosworth, was, remember the Bosworth yes, Bible? Yes, yes. The hired man was buried in his coffin instead. What? This is how, by the way, Bosworth's widow got the money to buy the general store and remarry, to, leading her to connect with, with Larry Landspeak's branch what? of the family. Um, it should be pointed out that Bosworth was not actually trampled by horses, um, which is, was the <laughs> excuse of why he was already dead. According to Adam, there was a bullet in his head before the horse ever got close. What? Whoa. So, suspicion, suspicion, suspicion. Uh, yes, um, I would assume so. Yeah. Um, but after that, Adam has to head to bed. He's 94 years old. He's awake past his bedtime. Well, of course. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> Dingleberry's got a dream. <laughs> after that, Quill heads back to the farmhouse and, guided by Coco, finds a secret compartment in the school desk in the kitchen. Mm. Um, it includes various contracts for secret work and promises to keep silent, likely regarding the quote-unquote death of Ephraim Goodwinter. Um, and this relates back to various people that we've talked to before. Um, particularly a uh, a contract for Luther Bosworth's to do Luther Bosworth Luther Bosworth to do some stonework for them um, with the condition that he keeps silent 
and in exchange, his will in exchange he receives three thousand dollars. Hmm. $3,000 back in, say, 1920 yeah, time. where, you know, people lived pretty happily on $5 a month. Oh, absolutely. $3,000 is might as well be $1 billion. Exactly. It should be mentioned that uh, the Bosworth widow paid cash for the general store. Oh, my. So, she owns it outright. Coco then continues to bury himself under rugs until Quill gets the hint, and they go looking for a tunnel in the barn, which they find. Huh. Um, after returning to the farmhouse for another flashlight and knee padding, which turned out to be Iris's pink monogram towels. Oh, no. Cool oh. uh, puts Coco on a leash, and the two head back to the tunnel to see where it leads. At the end of the, and the tunnel ends next to a wall that is apparently the basement of the farmhouse, and left next to the wall is a portable tape recorder with a tape of all sorts of unearthly Halloween-y sounds. Hmm. This is why Iris was hearing those noises. And this, by the way, scares Coco and sends him absolutely fleeing out the tunnel. And poor Quill is just trying to creep up. Uh, on the phone, after they get back to the house, uh, Carol Lenspeak is calling. Look, Carol is Larry's wife. Mm -hmm. um, baby is going to make a full recovery. Oh, good. Uh, debatable good news. Verona's pregnant. Baby number two. Yay. Baby two. <laughs> um, Carol says that she and Larry are going to cover their expenses to go back down south, since apparently Vince has just completely disappeared without a dime. And also, by the way, they voted to give Mitch Ogilvie the museum job. Well, obviously. Duh. He's actually showing up. Yeah, well, duh. When, uh, and he's actually here. When you're, when you're, you know, since the other option is now a wanted felon, who, by the way, is caught somewhere in Ohio, it's not like you had much of a choice. Nope, Exactly. Oh, boy. Um, Quill goes to visit Verona in the hospital, and later, and she relates the whole terrible tale. Um, Vince heard the family story that Ephraim's fortune in gold was buried under the farmhouse, so he came up with a printing press history story to cover his sudden reappearance. Um, when Iris got suspicious of the strange noises he heard, he came up with a plan to scare her out, playing the tape of Halloween sounds, and then eventually having Verona stand at Iris's kitchen window in the white sheet with the burned eyes. Oh, no. Eyes. Well, that scared Iris. It didn't kill her, so apparently Vince finished the job with a feather pillow from the museum collection. Oh, my God. With the mystery solved, Quill spends one last night in the museum with the cats with full plans to move back to Pickaxe as soon as humanly possible. Absolutely. God, mm. just light a match and walk away at this point. Much. This, I geez. mean, this farmhouse is not full of happy anything. No, there's not full of, like, it's full of some happy cats, but... No, that's the barn, not the farmhouse. That's true, that's the barn. So yeah, burn the farmhouse down. Burn it all, just Targaryen it. Jesus. Yeah, too many antiques, apparently. Ugh. All right, so that that story is, is sad. It is, however, a really big transition in how Quill lives his life in Pickaxe. Um, because he's had these connections before mm -hmm. that, you know, Iris particularly is a big connection. She was his housekeeper, you mm -hmm. know, she was his landlady, then she was his housekeeper. Um, and they've lived through the Klingonshun fire, and she's very important to Quill. Absolutely. Um, she's been a very, yeah, she's been a very important character since, you know, since he moved to Moose County. Exactly. So, this book was not my favorite to do. Understandable. Um, it's, but, uh, it's un understandable completely. So, to move on, let's talk about some of the new people that we met. Because sure. we've met a lot, we've met a few, not as many as previous books. We're starting to settle into this world. Mm -hmm. um, we meet the Dingleberries who run the funeral home and will apparently, by the way, bury you for free if you're over 100. Um, That's Adam's, a Dingleberry promise. Dingleberry promise. Adam Dingleberry is the 94-year-old patriarch. His sons run the business. We also meet uh, Rhoda Finney who is an 85-year-old widow who's been chasing 95-year-old Homer, Tib Homer Tibbet, excuse me, 91-year-old Homer, Homer Tibbet, because Adam <laughs> Dingleberry is four years older, um, for as long as anyone can remember. By the way, Rhoda and Homer in this book get married on a trip to Lockmaster when they go to get her hearing aid fixed. 
If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that story happening. So we meet uh, Christy Waffle and Mitch Ovi. Christy, as we mentioned, lives on the Fuck Tree Farm, mm-hmm. had goats, um, at least at this point, and sees the ghost for grandmother walking on thunderstorm nights. Um, Quill, at one point as he's driving by, wonders if she has a husband and why he hasn't cut the grass. <laughs> maybe, he's, maybe he's lost in the grass. Dude. Um, Mitch Ogilvie, uh currently works the checkout desk at the New Pickaxe Hotel and uh, was applying to replace Iris at the museum at the, as the book ends. We find out that he got the job. Yay. Good. I think so that's it should of... be mentioned that Christy and Mitch are a thing. Oh. So as an even better combination, you know, Mitch can manage the museum, live with Christy. Everybody's happy. Great. Um, so Quill has been writing the Quill pen now for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Become, it's become expected. Um, but due to Iris's death and all of the drama at the museum, he, he, he really just has no material. Right. And I I would think not, maybe not have the capacity to write a column with someone who's so close to him suddenly is murdered. And that doesn't mean much to Arch, who tells Quill, people have come to expect the Quill pen on certain days. Find an old timer and rip off some memoirs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Um, Arch. Yes. Arch, arch, arch. It's by my end. Um, restaurants. We don't have a lot in this book, but we do get a name for the luncheonette by the courthouse. This has been mentioned in two other books, and it is finally named as Lois's Luncheonette. An institution is born. We don't get to enjoy it much in this book, but this is going to play a huge role later. This becomes the Monk's Cafe or JJ's Diner. Yes, exactly. Something like that. This is the place where Quill walks to, Quill always goes, you know, Lois always has turkey for the cat. <laughs> It's, it's a thing. Um, Lois's luncheon is incredibly important, so I'm really glad that it's finally part of the of, of everything. Wonderful. Um, this book, by the way, also has the first mention of Quill's high school English teacher, uh, known as Mrs. Fisheye. Mrs. Fisheye. Mrs. Fisheye, who taught Quill and Arch back in Chicago. Hmm. The story goes that she would frequently assign thousand-word essays on a variety of topics, leading to Quill's ability to be interesting on pretty much any subject for at least that long. <laughs> And this is where the quill pen really comes in. For a thousand words, he'll have, you, have you riveted. One thousand and one, no, sorry, <laughs> snooze fest. We are going to do a brief uh, rundown of Polly for mm-hmm. this book. Uh, there are so many dubious mentions of Polly's cooking skills here because apparently she and Quill one evening read a T.S. Eliot book called The Cocktail Party. Um, and now everything that Polly cooks is curry. <laughs> Quill is really less than enthused about coming over to dinner. By the way, everyone has pumpkin pie for dessert, so clearly this is in the fall. Um, in the fall? Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Um, how, however, I give Polly full credit for she seems to enjoy torturing, uh, torturing Quill and invites him to attitude adjustment hour before dinner. <laughs> with oh. the quote of, eat thy bread with joy and drink thy squunk water with a merry heart. Not Shakespeare, but it's Ecclesiastes. Um, <laughs> It's in the Bible, somewhere in the exactly, back. Exactly, it is. Um, <laughs> there is, at this book, a really not great sign for their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, Quill admits that when he's going out with Polly, he'll wear whatever is available and clean. Um, but he actually puts thought into dressing nicely when he's going to dinner with Mildred. Oh. Now, he claims that this is because Polly is not, quote-unquote, attuned to fashion, while Mildred has an eye for color and design. That's not a Dude, good excuse. Make the effort for who you're dating. No, exactly. Rude. Now. I have a question real quick. This is a bit off topic, but speaking, you mentioned Polly and and cooking. You are aware that there is a cookbook. 
yes. of the cat who. Yes. And I'm sorry, I'm just looking it up at Amazon. You may have a Christmas present coming later uh-huh. on. But it's interesting, as reading the reviews of it, there are different recipes in here that I'm, I, some of them I would hope would be Iris Cobb's recipes. But it's for things that you can find uh, 400 miles north of... Uh, of nowhere with recipes like Polly's picnic brownies, sea scallops with saffron cream of angel hair pasta, uh, marinated mushrooms, Thanksgiving potatoes, Vonda's chocolate whoppers, which I'm guessing we have not met Vonda we have and not her, yet. And her we delicious have, chocolate we have whoppers. Not yet met, had the chocolate whoppers. You will remember the chocolate whoppers. Oh, there's also a section that is called Feline Fair with some of Coco and Yum Yum's favorite <laughs> treats. It looks like it's out of print, but there are uh, copies you can find used. Well, so how fun. The Cat yeah. Who Cookbook. Yeah, I knew they had made one. I just never looked it up. Um, so we have a couple of signs of the times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the obvious one, all the telephones are landlines. Um, <laughs> it's interesting to me that while the – well, again, in this case, the museum catalog, com- totally computerized. Mm-hmm. Um, but Iris uses a typewriter to send letters to her son. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have the opposite direction. Because Homer Tibbet tells Quill a story about how when he was a kid, he and his buddies would spook a house. Spook. Um, and how you spook a house is by putting a nail in a loose board on a porch or a wall and tie a string to it. You pull the string taut and bow it. It makes a horrible noise that reverberates through the house. But he claims this won't work with anything with aluminum siding and modern insulation. So any house now. So any house now. But, you know, when the house <laughs> when houses were hand-built, uh, you know, were hand-built out of hand-hewn boards, right. uh, it was a way that you could really scare the shit out of something. If you really wanted to, sure. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Um, we've got a couple of odd quill facts. Um, he doesn't own a dark suit. Hmm. It had to be fitted for one very, very quickly. He had to bribe the uh, tailor at Scotty's Men's Shop to, to, hold, to stay for an extra half an hour so he could get there. From the from the farmhouse to be fitted for a dark suit because apparently he was a pallbearer and nobody told him. That seems like okay. Just rude. You can't. Um, you also eat. You can't also eat sandwiches if they're cut triangle wise. I don't <laughs> know. Um, there is a, a an odd, slight odd coincidence. Um, I mentioned the vintage school desk. Mm-hmm. This is a vintage school desk that Iris had in her kitchen that she used for a telephone table. But it turns out it was Homer Tibbet's school desk hmm. and Adam Dingleberry's before him. Although. You know, while Homer Tibbet carved his own initials in the top, Adam Dingleberry carved somebody else's. Um, uh, the other thing before we get to cats will be cats, which I like to end with. Um, I did a brief search, and I cannot find any record of Lillian Jackson Braun having children. Um, it should be clarified that I have no judgment of anyone choosing whether or not to have children. I assume you're making the right decision for you. That's the right decision. Um... But her lack of experience with children um, might explain Quill's general dislike of them. And her strange assertion from Verona that baby talked in full sentences at eight months. Now, technically, I guess that that is possible. Now, they don't say that anyone else understands these sentences. She's describing it like like it's actual full sentences. Um, But it's really more likely that it was 18 months for full sentences. And this coming from the mother of the almost 10-month-old, who certainly communicates, but words aren't a thing yet. No, word, it's mostly babbles and brooks and squeaks and, you know, not saying, Mother, I would like a rice <laughs> cake rusk, please. Exactly. Sounded like Myra um, Rose. The baby now, is hungry. The baby is hungry. Why is the baby screaming? We've, by the way, been finishing Schitt's Creek for the first time. We're, we're in love. It's wonderful. Anyway, it's, if you have not watched it, we highly encourage it. It's exactly. delightful. Anyway. Um, I really don't give enough time to focusing on 
baby being actually a very bright and engaging child who really does win quill over. Well, clearly but, speaking in full sentences at eight months, but that's beside the point. You know, she's t uh, approximately two and a half years old when this book's going on. So, mm -hmm. uh, so twice, so 36-ish months. Um, that would make sense speaking in full sentences. Uh, uh, well, at this point, she's, you know, she's really talking. Sure. Um, she's probably talking closer to a, to a three or a four-year-old. Um, but that be regardless of that, I mean, people are, are incredibly uh, precocious and anything can happen. Sure. Um, but, but really, her, um, her cuteness, honestly, is just not that important to the plot, so that's why it doesn't get mentioned in my <laughs> summary. Cute kid cannot go uh, riding on those coattails. Exactly. All right, finally, we get <laughs> cats, cats will be cats. cats. So Coco and Yum Yum, um, after Quill goes out, finds Iris's body, he comes back to pickaxe, and he and he's moving out to the farmhouse. So of course he's taking cats. Of course. Um, and they object to their car travel all of a sudden uh, until Quill starts giving them a running travel log of the trip. <laughs> <laughs> he's literally saying, "And now we're passing this. And look at the beautiful color. They can't see this. They're in a they're in a basket. They're in a bag. But oh, he's... look, we're about to cross the old stone bridge." Uh, all of these things. That farm calms him down, so that's well, great. Well, that's good. Um, but uh, he preps a very nice, Quill then preps a very nice dinner for himself of a lamb shank with lentils, mm. um, and then gets called away by a phone call. Uh, the cats ate the lamb shank. They left in the lentils, though. No, well, you know, at least they were generous to leave him something. Precisely. Um, we also, by the way, meet re-meet William Allen who is formerly of the Pickaxe Picayune, where he was the staff mouser. Oh, uh, yes. Um, apparently he's gotten a promotion after escaping from the burning Picayune building. On the door to the newspaper offices of the Moose County, something he is listed as general manager. Well, good for William. Absolutely. That's stepping up in the world. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, finally in this book, we meet the Siamese kitten named Bootsy. And this is Polly's Bootsy cat. Bootsy belongs to Polly. Uh, Quill is not a fan of this cat. <laughs> this cat is not a fan of Quill. Um, Quill finds him cloying and infantile and honestly thinks she should have named him Puck, which is not an unreasonable expectation <laughs> considering her love for Shakespeare. Considering, um, yes, Puck is a character. Polly begs Quill to cat-sit Bootsy overnight. Oh, no. Um, and she brings his special food and his brushing requirements and his commode filled with clean paper towers paper towels, excuse me, um, because newsprint might stain his precious fur and he's not accustomed to gravel. Now who's Myra Rose? Exactly. <laughs> um, apparently also this cat has never been let loose of Polly's because the next thing Quill knows he's flying all over the, uh, the museum, um, eating the meatloaf that Quill was saving for dinner, and then attacking Quill from above and sinking his claws into Quill's sweater <laughs> and back and won't let go until Quill rolls him in the sweater to take it off, after which he falls asleep. Um, Bootsy is responsible, absolutely responsible, for the reason why Quill and Polly never get married in this series. Spoiler alert. Um, and the reasoning that Quill will always give when people ask, so what are you and Polly going to tie the knot? Our cats are incompatible. Honestly, a legitimate reason. Absolutely. Especially if, you know, it's me or the cat. Well, I choose the cat, especially if Bootsy would not get get along well with Coco and Yum Yum. Yeah, Coco and Yum Yum spend this entire visit hiding on top of the Pennsylvania German Shrine. Because Bootsy can't leap up there quite yet. Um, <laughs> ha ha, you can't get us. <laughs> exactly. Um, Quill also calls Bootsy Bigfoot. Bigfoot. <laughs> because, you know, he's a kitten. He's like 10 weeks old and his feet are too big for his body. <laughs> so it's just that thing where they, it's that awkward, they can't quite get footing and they're yes. just so trumbling over things. It's like puppies or any animals where your your paws are full grown, but the rest of you Yeah, yours, the rest of you hasn't caught up yet. It's just so That's weird. That's Bootsy. Aw, Bootsy. So the cats are incompatible. This is, um, 
Polly and the way that she relates to this cat are a huge problem for Quill. Um, <laughs> you know what? Quill has very minimal ground to stand on, and he admits this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he calls Yum Yum his little sweetheart. Uh, he rearranges his life to make sure that the cats are fed on time. Sure. But there is something that galls him about the way that Polly treats Bootsy. <laughs> it's the way that she treats him like a baby, whereas he treats his cats, uh, he, whereas he treats Coco and Yum Yum as intelligent roommates. Um, you know, they're important. They're hugely important. They're not coddled. They're not... They're not treated like idiots. <laughs> um, there's not a kish kiss and a brush brush. Oh, um, Jesus. <laughs> with, with Coco and Yum Yum. Uh, they they are very much on the treat scale. Um, they they will respond to a brushing. Sure. Uh, they, they don't do so well with kissing. I don't. No. No. <laughs> so yeah, it makes sense why. They so would Bootsy not is the doom of the Quill Polly of the Quill Polly getting married. Oh shit. And they predict this fairly early in the series. So it's interesting to see where this goes um, over particularly, I'd say, the next four or five books. It's um, they're still together. They're still together. But they never get married. Huh. Well, not everything has and to end up. And not everything has to end up with, with marriage. Right. Um, but remember that they, live in the, that they live in this small community 400 miles north of everywhere. And the first question that they're going to ask you when you're dating somebody is, so when are you getting married? Right. Especially if they've been together at, you know, once, if we're talking about four or five books from now, that's quite a while. Yes, it is. And uh, remember that this goes, this, this relationship actually goes all the way through the books. Oh. So, um, so it's, you know, a reasonable expectation at least according to this community, that they would be expected to get married. And Quill's response continually is, our cats are incompatible. Hmm. Cats are incompatible. And there you go. Now, do you have a paw rating for this one? Speaking of cats. This one's hard. Um, I like the mystery. I like... I like the... the more so than the last two books, which have kind of been mystery and world building, mm-hmm. this one is bringing everything in together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the combination of the uh, Boswell connecting to Landspeak Exbridge um, genealogy. And that's a lot of fun, and that's why, you know, they're supporting this clearly not good guy. Um, I'd probably give this about two paws. About two, okay. Um, it, because it's it's just so hard to read. Now it, it's not fair that Iris dies so soon. Mm-hmm. It's not fair that she dies for really no good reason. Aside from, uh, would you consider this to be quote unquote fridging a woman? The term where basically uh, someone that's driving a man's uh, his motivation is a woman dying, which is something that comes up very frequently in. Uh, other and not necessarily other mystery stories, but just other works of fiction where there's an important, you know, char- a female character that's very important to the male protagonist. She doesn't have a chance to live much of a life, and I, I may be butchering it, but basically no, sacrificing think- her in order to advance Quill's story. Unfortunately, yeah, I think that would be exactly what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not, there's probably not a lot else you could do with Iris. Um, with the way that Lillian Jackson Bond has written with has written her, um, you know, she might have gotten married again. Then she would have had to come up with another way for her to become horribly divorced and widowed. Um, and and frankly, in in looking at it as that is the only option, I'd rather have her die <laughs> well. and not have to go through what she went through with her pack pole again. Um, because she's already at this point had three husbands die under terrible circumstances. Um. 
Her first husband died of poisoning, not food poisoning, just poisoning. C.C. Mm. Uh, uh, Cobb uh, was murdered uh, when he was trying to remove black walnut paneling from a house on Swinger Street in uh, The Cat Who Turned On and Off. Uh. And then we've got her pack pole, who turned out to be an absolutely horrible crap state of a human being uh who burned down that who burned down the klingenstein museum and died in the fire hmm. so this is not somebody who's been written with much of a character other than she is wonderful and kindly she has amazing cooking skills and terrible taste in men hmm. so there wasn't really a anywhere whole lot. else to go with her it's kind of i honestly see this kind of like Doing with Iris what she did with Alexander and Penelope a few books earlier. The Good Winters. Uh, the mm -hmm. Good Winter lawyer twins, um, because not twins, but you know, right? Um, there were they, they they didn't have enough. They didn't have enough effect on the story to really be useful later on. Hmm. Um, and so she figured out a way to give them an interesting death and then moved on. Um, we've got Osmond Hazelrich and. Uh, the, his whole new law firm now, and it's really, we're not missing the Good Winter Twins at all. No. Um, we really are. But, um, but Iris, Iris Cobb. Iris we're going to miss. It's going to miss. Um, uh, and she does, spoiler alert, get slightly replaced, but not in the same way. Um, there, There is, reading this one and reading later books, I feel like there's, there's almost the realization of, oh, there was more I could have done with this if I had given Iris a little bit more of a personality. So she recreates her. Uh, in a slightly different way. So it's it's Mrs. Landingham dying and then replacing uh, with Deborah Fitterer. Mm -hmm. So it's still a memorable character, but it's not Mrs. Landingham. There's only, just like there's always there's only one. There's only one Iris Cobb and there will only be one Mrs. Landingham. Um, but, you know, the nice thing that, it's very clear that her writing skills improve because the person that I, that comes in to kind of fill Iris's role in later books really is a wonderful character. On okay. um, so I'm excited to get to that a little bit later. But... And and this is, I'm surprised you haven't heard this term. Uh, it's actually, well, it's actually called women in refrigerators. Yes, I have, heard, I have heard the term. I gotcha. just had to okay. think about whether Iris really counted as being a fridge case. Ah, I, I misunderstood your uh, pausing, so. Yeah, no, that was just me trying to figure out if it fit. And for those who are under, uh, do not know this trope, if I can just real, real quickly explain it, because I think it does fit reading the explanation. Uh, it was created by a uh, group of feminists uh, comic book writers who list examples of superhero comic book characters where a female character is injured, raped, killed, or depowered, an event uh, called fridging, to stimulate protective traits, often as a plot device intended to move a male character's arc forward, uh, and this happens incredibly disproportionately to female characters yes. as opposed to male characters. Yes, and it's actually called fridging because of a comic book trope of there tends to be a head in a fridge. They actually, uh, the example I'm looking at right now, there's no, there's a uh, still of Green Lantern, yeah. uh, yes, where he finds a uh, dismembered body in a refrigerator. Yeah, fridging is not good. Um, and, you know, I look at this, It uh, one of the reasons that I thought this project would be fun mm -hmm. is because I'm interested in seeing how Lillian Jackson Braun's writing style develops over over the time. Because we're we're talking about a woman who's written a book and a single series over 50 years. Mm -hmm. If you go all the way back to, actually, um, let's see here. Um, so almost 60 years. 60 years now, yes. Yeah. So they're, they're like the first book, f which was published. In uh, 1967. In 1967, so almost 50 years. 
because it, when she passed away, she would it would have yes, been forty. Right. Yeah, but, but so, still okay, forty. Right. But either way, forty but either years, way, multiple decades. Almost, yeah, we're looking at almost at, at a writing a single series over fifty years, mm-hmm. um, and with the intention that she very clearly has that she's writing these books contemporary to when she's writing them. So you know, in later books, we'll see cell phones. In later books, we'll see real computers. Mm-hmm. Um, more signs of the time. More signs of the time. But it's fascinating as you also watch how she treats various characters um, as we get later in the series. So, fare thee well, Iris. We hardly knew ye. Shame. Raise a glass to Iris. Absolutely. And And go make some homemade macaroni and cheese, which was her favorite. And try to find some sort of a, well, again, the recipes there. I'm sure you can find something such as uh, a Thanksgiving potatoes (laughs) or whatever one of these dishes. Well, any final thoughts on uh, this book, The Cat Who Saw Ghosts? I'm glad it's over and we can move on with the next. This is really kind of the end of the transitional period. Um, After this point, Quill is pretty much settled in Moose Moose County. So Mm -hmm. we're going to get, we're about to dive into uh, the travel books. Oh, um, you mentioned that there's one where he goes on a down below trip. There, are, uh, there. Are, we're the next book we're going down below. Another book we're going to the Potato Mountains. Another book he goes to Scotland. Mm. Um, and we've got like three in a row of those before he comes back to Pickaxe and settles in. Hmm. So this, so it's kind of like that transitional. It, that that becomes a different transitional period. But this is the end of Quill's establishment. Uh, establishment in Pickaxe. Um, by the time we come back from all of these travel books, he's Mr. Q. Um, he is familiar face to friend and to man and beast. Um, he might and, as well be a native. Exactly. So what is the next book that we're going to be reading? Alrighty. Our next book in the series is The Cat Who Lived High, and we're going to be traveling back down below with this one. Do we go to Shaclevroit or is we this... We go to Shaclevroit. We're actually returning to Junktown. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, this will be fun. Yes. I, now... I'm sure you're all going to be very happy as I am if a certain uh, Mr. Bunsen comes back, but I don't think he will be. I'll have to check. I haven't I, I haven't started the next one. I haven't started the Cat Who Lived High yet, so we will see when I get there. Hopefully you will be delighted as I am. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Cat Who Did a Podcast. We'll see you next time. I am Susan Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry, and happy sleuthing. And until next time, stay nosy, my friends. Thank you.